3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're here for Tuesday breakfast at 3CR. My name is Jasmine and in the studio we have Gav and Ivka. How are you both this morning? How was your weekend? Yeah, it was good. I feel like I always get into the studio on a Tuesday morning and completely blank on what I did on the weekend. What did I do? I went to the Melbourne Now exhibition. Um, Oh, is that the new one at... Yeah, NGV Ian Potter. Yeah, it was great. It was the opening weekend, so they had a a bunch of artist talks. Um, I went to see Mia Bo. She's a... um, a First Nations artist who depicts uh, First Nations colonial and police violence through her yeah. visual art. Yeah, it was it was phenomenal. So she just gave a talk, just a bit about her practice, and then spoke through her art and um, just the curation. But the exhibition, more broadly, even was yeah, really really good. Highly recommend. I think it's on until late August. Amazing. Yeah, um, some some great artists. Um, we will be back. Um, just in a moment and then we'll take you through the news headlines. Have you had your fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the Royal Children's Hospital are recruiting participants aged 18 years or older to receive a randomized fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose, either Moderna bivalent or Novavax vaccine, or be part of a control group and receive no additional vaccine. You will be compensated for your time and transport and will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to threecr.org.au and get in touch. Stay tuned in to 3CR Community Radio. Over the weekend, it was announced Chris Minns will be the New South Wales next Premier and for the first time in 12 years, Labor is back in power in Australia's most populous state. Mr Minns and his team promised a fresh start for New South Wales and they'll now have a chance to offer that. The family of an Aboriginal man killed by police in North Queensland town, Mariba, say he was unarmed, holding a mobile phone and attempting to surrender when he was shot four times by tactical officers. 
Hundreds of Black Lives Matter protesters marched through Mariba on Monday demanding answers from police over the shooting of Aubrey Donoghue, who was 27. Despite the Greens pushing the government to allow voters for the voice to enrol on referendum day, voters will be required to enrol in advance in order to cast their vote, something advocates say could negatively affect Indigenous communities. Uh, we also just want to mention an upcoming webinar um, held by the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service on the 29th of March. Um, they've advised it's been almost 32 years since the findings of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody were handed down, but the current prison healthcare system is still failing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and contributing to deaths in custody. We're bringing together a panel of experts who will discuss the need for reformed prison healthcare systems so that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are incarcerated who are incarcerated, rather, can access cultural, safe, trauma-informed healthcare that is of equal adequacy to what they would receive in the community. Um, so that's a webinar, and you can register via a link on their website, um, and the title of the webinar is Vows Prison Healthcare. Um, so, yeah, highly recommend attending that. So that, again, is March 29 um, at quarter to one. Vanessa Worm is a New Zealand artist based here in Nam. We're going to play you one of her songs now called Promised Land. Me inside hate Everything I've done It's brought me pain But oh I surrender Now
That was Promised Land by Vanessa Worm. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We will be back after these messages. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Three CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kindergarten. In a kinder program, children learn through play, art, music and dance. Qualified teachers create culturally safe places for Aboriginal children and families. Koori kids shine at kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash koori-kids-shine. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Three CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Did you know that emissions from native forest logging in southeastern Australia are greater than Australia's domestic aviation industry? We bring you a report from Earth Matters' Edwin Jeffrey speaks with Dr Jennifer Sanger from Environmental Research Group Tree Projects. Dr Sanger discusses three new reports tracking the carbon footprint created by native logging in southeast Australia and the efforts being taken by the logging industry to hide this carbon cost. 
We'll be hearing from ecologist and author Dr Jennifer Sanger from The Tree Project about three recent reports she's penned tracking the emissions created by native forest logging and how private logging entities try to cover these emissions up. So let's get underway. Our first interview starts off with Dr Sanger introducing herself and how these three reports looking into native forest logging emissions came about. Okay, so my name is Dr Jen Sanger. I'm a forest ecologist with the Tree Project. And I started uh, looking at the importance of forests and carbon because I live down in Tasmania and we've got some really remarkable forests down here. Um, They often talk about Tassie's forests being some of the most carbon dense in the whole entire world. And so that got me thinking, you know, if if we're logging the most carbon dense forests in the world, then what does that mean for emissions? Surely that's meant to be pretty significant, right? Um, and I thought this would be a really easy question to answer because, you know, I, I knew that there was um, um, climate change reporting that's done at both the state and the national level. And, um, and I know that that's broken down into different sectors and industries. Um, so, yeah, I thought it would be a really easy question to answer. But when I went to go look for those numbers, I, I couldn't really find them. So, yeah, I, so I decided to do my own research on it. And Jen, this is, uh, brings us into our conversation today. You've recently written a report looking at New South Wales and uh, st- native logging. Um, but it came out with this figure, which was, if native forests were protected in New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania, 212 million tonnes of carbon would be prevented from entering the atmosphere by 2050. Now, for those of us who don't sort of think about emissions on a daily basis, what do, how do you conceptualise that? What does that look like? Yeah, so that would be the same um, emission saving is, is, um, as if we shut down Australia's dirtiest power plant something for something like 22 years. It's also equivalent to um, um, converting something like 10% of Australia's households to solar. Like it, it's just a huge, a huge um, thing that could be done to prevent emissions from happening. And I know that uh, your report specifically looking at New South Wales was part of sort of a combined effort or, or three reports that were released around the same time. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, yeah, how these three, what these three reports are looking at and how they work together or, or, or give us a picture of native logging? Yeah, so um, I did my first report in Tasmania because this is where I'm based and I do a fair bit of campaigning down here. And um, I looked at um, the emissions from native forest logging in Tasmania and I found that there was something like 4.6 million tonnes being emitted each year. Now, that actually makes forestry, native forest logging, in Tasmania the most highly um, um, emitting industry out of anything in the state. So there's more emissions coming from forestry than there is from any other sector which was quite alarming. I mean, I knew that the figures would be high, but I didn't realise it would be that much. Um, so that was really quite um, a, a big, big finding. Um, so I released that Tasmanian report in June last year, and then I got contacted by the wonderful people at Victorian Forest Alliance, and they were really keen for me to um, have a look at Victoria's emissions. Um, and so I did that around, um, I think it was October last year, and, um, yeah, and then I've been working with some people in New South Wales and I've just recently released last week um, 
the New South Wales Forest Carbon Report too. So um, when you look at um, Victoria, so Victoria emits about 3 million tonnes of carbon a year, whereas New South Wales is about 3.6 million tonnes of carbon per year. So they both emit quite a significant amount. So if you combine all of those, that, those states, um, you get about 11.6 million tonnes of carbon um, each year being emitted. And that's, um, yeah, so that's, that's equivalent to something like 2.6 million cars or um, it's even more than um, Australia's domestic aviation industry. So it's, it's quite a significant amount. Now, your reports are written uh, in response to a lack of transparency in current emissions reporting requirements uh, from an industry logging perspective. I've always been fascinated with the many manifestations of the public relations industry, and reporting is one of those areas where numbers and statistics are smudged to look good. Can you tell us a little bit about this world of reporting that you've now experienced in Tasmania, New South Wales and Victoria, and your experience now with how the facts get hidden? Yeah, so we have a really big problem with the way that emissions are being reported in the forest sector. And it's, um, it's, it's not just at the state level, it's actually at the national level. And there's also um, other countries like um, Canada that have this same problem as well. But basically what they do is that they, they treat forest as this, just this one entity. So, of course, forests draw down a lot of carbon from the atmosphere, um, um, and so they often have, um, you know, a negative carbon balance because they're, they're drawing it down from, um, from the atmosphere. But then um, the logging of the forests is also within that same reporting um, sphere as well. So there's, there's, there's a lot of emissions coming from forestry, but they're actually reported together in the same category and they kind of net each other out. And so you can't really get a full picture of... Um, of how much emissions are coming from um, native forest logging. And on the same hand, too, you can't get a full picture of how much carbon is actually being drawn down by our forests in total. Now, this makes it super hard for policymakers. So they're only just presented with this one figure, which is a net figure of both, and it's really hard for them to make decisions on how to manage forests if they're not getting a true picture of what's going on. And so if these if these um, two, two factors, so the... the emissions from forestry and then the carbon that's sequestered from, from the growing trees, if they were reported separately, they'd be able to make some better informed decisions about it. Uh, the last question I wanted to ask you was sort of on a much larger federal level. Um, we've seen a lot of friction between the Environmental Biodiversity Protection Conservation Act and regional forest agreements. And when I say that, I'm talking about the 2021 a review into the Environmental Biodiversity Act, which basically problematized regional forest agreements, the um, moving of logging into state jurisdiction rather than a federal level. Uh, now that that interview, sorry, that review came out with a recommendation 15, which said that regional forest agreements needed big overhaul, big reform, and needed to be brought up to the same environmental standards as our federal ones. And now. Jen, I know we've spoken about RFAs in the past and I wanted to ask you, do you think reform is possible with these statewide agreements or do you reckon that we need to just scrap them and start from scratch with how we organise logging or at least protections for forests in on a state level? Yeah, so the one, the massive thing that's the big concern about the regional forest agreements is that they have this exemption from 
from the um, the federal environmental laws. So forestry is the only industry that doesn't have to abide by um, the federal these federal laws, and it, it'd be equivalent to being on a building site, and you know um, everybody having to apply by the rules. So you've got your chippies, you've got your um, plasterers, you've got your sparkies. They're all having to do things by you know one standard and, and making sure everything's safe and. and and good when then you've just got plumbers coming in doing whatever the hell they want. And so it's just a completely unfair kind of system, you know. Mm. Um, and so I'm really hoping that we do see some um, reform on this. And if, if the RFAs, if they were brought into line and had to abide by the national standards when they get drawn up, that would be a pretty good start. I reckon um, scrapping the RFAs altogether would be also be a fantastic idea but what it, that all depends on what would take um, take over in its place as well too, because there's a whole bunch of other elements to the regional forest agreements in terms of um, on a whole bunch of other um, forestry um, specific um, regulations um, as well too. But yeah, just getting them in line with the national standards would be absolutely fantastic. Now we have heard some stuff um, from um, Tanya Plibersek and. Um, the Albanese government about this, that they're thinking about it and they're considering it. We haven't heard any strong language that it's going to take place or if that, you know, or a time frame. And so um, if anyone's out there listening and they have some spare time on their hands, it'd be wonderful if you can write to Tanya Klobasek and um, really talk to her and, um, and ask her to really take action on making sure that RFAs have to abide by the law mm. <laughs> that everybody else has to and that, um, to make them a part of the nationals and standards because it's really important. So if, if this was to happen, for instance, so at the moment in Tasmania, we have um, Sustainable Timber Tasmania, which is the state-owned lobbying agency, so that it's just going absolute nuts and just clearing so much swift parrot habitat. Now, the swift parrot is critically endangered mm. and its numbers have dropped dramatically in the last 10 years. And the thing is, this bird is so well studied. Most of our threatened species, we don't really know much about them. But the swift parrot, we understand their ecology really, really well. And their number one threat by far is the loss of habitat through logging. And we know this so well and we understand it so well. Yet, um, because of the RFAs, um, state government can just log all of its habitat without any without any you know checks or balances or anything like that and we need to do better um, otherwise the swift parrots are not going to be with us for much longer and that was dr jennifer sanger from the tree project talking about the native logging industry and how much emissions it creates as well as necessary reforms we need to make both to rfas the way we think about carbon capture and the reporting of emissions Jen mentioned in the interview the Victorian Forest Alliance with whom she worked on for the Victoria Reporting and you can check them out at victorianforestalliance.org.au. Solidarity Salon, home of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir. We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organising centre eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir, near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter. Thank you. 
We're going to play a track for you now and with this one we'll take you back to 2019 with Missing Me by Angie McMahon. Loving you is throwing me Loving you is lonely Loving you is lonely Oh, you can swag it you can gather attention, but I'm sick of your photographs. I'm so sick of your photographs. Oh, you can chatter and you could talk me to nothing, but I'm tired of being your sweetheart. I'm tired of being your sweetheart. Loving you is told me you have been my You're listening to 3CR. That was Missing Me by Angie McMahon. Continuing on with the Earth Matters report we played earlier, Idwin Jeffrey checks in with Sue McKinnon from King Lake Friends of the Forest to get an update on KFF and environmental East Gippsland's success in court last year. They discuss the need for greater transparency in the Victorian government's plan to phase out native logging and the citizen science efforts underway in 2023 to ensure Victoria's forests stay protected. Your team had huge success in November in a joint court case with um, East Environment Gippsland. 
Victoria's Supreme Court found that the agency Vic Forests had failed to adequately survey for endangered greater glider possums before logging with its timber harvesting operations in East Gippsland and the Central Highlands with the threat of serious or irreversible harm to the gliders. Can you tell us a little bit about the judgment and the success in November? Um, well, the main thing is that we won. Um, we won all the clauses that we argued, both K- King Lake, Friends of Forest and Environment East Gippsland won all the clauses they argued for. Um, the judgment was really clear. Um, Victoria has been in breach, in our case, Victoria has been in breach of two clauses. One clause basically says they must survey for endangered species, um, and they weren't. And the other saying they must avoid threatening serious or irreversible harm to the environment. Um, and in this case, we showed that the threat was um, that of extinction of two species. Um, so that greater glider and the yellow-bellied glider were um, being threatened and um, it was up to Vic Forest to prove they weren't. They weren't able to prove they weren't being threatened. And so, um, yeah, so the judgment was quite clear about that. Um, they haven't, they've failed to abide by their own logging laws um, and that's over the entire of the Central Highlands and East Gippsland, not just specific um, instances. Mm. Um, so the logging's been illegal and the wood produced from that logging is illegally logged wood. We had the Friends of the Leadbeater case and then in 2022 the Victorian government announced that it was publishing amendments to the Forestry Codes of Practice in Victoria and also the Conservation Forest and Land Act, which is what you're referencing in that response here. Um, th- these changes went through very fast. There was a little consultation period and there were significant changes. It's now that those changes have actually been formalised, they were published in June of last year, I believe, at least the changes to the Forestry Codes of Practice. I was wondering how that sort of um, what the impact's been like on forest regulation if it has gotten in the way of your community court cases. It's sounding like it's a no. Well, there was actually two changes to the code. Mm-hmm. The first one was in 2021, and um, that came through just just days before our other case. We we took the cross to court because they were not. We said where they were not abiding by the clause relating to screening yep. their logging from view. And um, just it, our case was delayed and delayed. And just days before our case went to trial, um, the code was changed and they removed the um, screening from view. And that just completely derailed our case. Mm. Um, since then, they had a second change in the code. And, they, um, and that's when they brought in the precautionary principle change and... Uh, yeah, we just tweaked our, we just changed our evidence or added more evidence to our trial and it didn't change much. The, the That second change was quite significant um, in that they also changed the, the Act that sits above the code and, um, and the changes in the Act mean that future code changes don't need any consultation. Wow. Um, yes, and forest protectors can be jailed. Um, it expands the power of the uh, police in the forest. Um, Vic, Vic police will now be able to ban people from the forest. Wow. Um, the new laws seem to be aimed at citizen scientists. Um, it means that climbing a tree to install, say, a, a wildlife camera to look for an endangered species 
and, and that's quite often done now for, for sake of lead feeder possums, um, can result in jail time for the surveyor. Um, it also can result in, in being banned from the forest by the police. So um, this, the changes to the Act were dramatic way above what, um, you know, I don't know. I know that um, we've obviously had a lot of protest laws um, being brought in by the Victorian government in the last couple of years, which could threaten that, but I didn't know it was to these sort of extents. It's really interesting to hear oh. the attack on citizen scientists, which, of course, oh. you guys are doing a lot of. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we, we base our cases would be nothing without citizen science. Um, mm. and, 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 and in fact, right now, because of our case and because of the orders that came in, so the Supreme Court has placed orders on Big Frost, they must survey, and where gliders are found, they must protect them. They also must protect um, other things like waterways and, and hollow different trees. Um, so it's up to us now to do a lot of monitoring. We, of course, don't trust Big Forest. So we will be out surveying um, like crazy and, um, and, and you know, <laughs> acts like that um, are quite significant when, when you, you know, when you realise how important monitoring in the forest is. Of course, when you're doing that day-to-day legwork oh. that goes into the court case. Sue, so we've had... Uh, Dr. Jennifer Sanger come on to the show earlier on the show, talking about the lack of transparency in emissions reporting from statewide logging entities in New South Wales, Tasmania and Victoria. As an activist that has been engaging with the forestry industry, either in the courtroom or on the forest floor, what is your perspective of what aspects of the logging public-private relationship um, that need more transparency, that remain really opaque? Well, I agree with with Jen that um, Jen Sanger, um, that emissions need to be declared um, and and not just lumped in the forest um, absorbs a lot of carbon and the reduction the emissions from, from logging is lost in amongst the um, the, the absorption of carbon. Um, so so that's one thing. Um, I guess in regards to transparency, I would like to see more transparency in where the logs from Hickfrost Logging are going to. So if you go to the website of, um, say, Australian Sustainable Hardwood, um, you have to search and search and search um, and, and go through a, very, a number of... Um, um, pages and links before you realise, oh, this is wood from Big Frost Logging. This is wood from our native forest. Um, and the same with other mills. Um, and the same with, with Nippon, making paper and making cardboard mm-hmm. out of our native forest. Um, it, it's not immediately apparent. It seems to be hidden. Um, and it's also hidden behind the word sustainable. Um, and, and note, none of these sites seem to um, admit that not only has it been found to be this, this wood that they're using to make their product has been found to have been illegally logged, um, but they also have the word sustainable printed hundreds of times on the website. And, you know, we've proven that because they're failing the precautionary principle, they're basically failing the very fundamental of sustainable development at, at, that Australia agreed to. So yeah, I find I find that these um, 
the, man, the, um, the suppliers, the resellers of wood, you know, of trees of our forest, um, it, it's just very opaque to say the least. Yeah, yep. Just greenwashing mm. and opaque. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, with that in mind, um, one of the big PR announcements that we've got from the Victorian government on this issue, I should say PR slash policy, serious po- hard policy, is that the government is going to phase out native uh, logging by 2030, and that's kicking off in 2024. Uh, now, that announcement was a couple of years ago, and we find ourselves closer and closer to 2024. I was wondering, as sort of someone engaged in this space, have we seen any movements around that or any action plan or, or sort of step-by-step process underway? Oh, there's nothing transparent about it. There's nothing um, that has been that we've seen that's been um, a reduction in, in any contract. So there's a contract to the Maryvale Mill um, between the government and the mill mm-hmm. uh, to supply wood for paper and cardboard, um, and that hasn't been officially changed. And it's oh, we just don't know what's happening with that contract because over the last certainly since our case. Came when our case decision was handed down in November last year. All logging in the east of the state, which is you know ninety nine percent of the wood going mm-hmm. to uh, Maribel, um, has been stopped. So because the court said you have to survey, and Big Cross were in no position to do survey, so they completely stopped all logging in the east of the state. Unfortunately, they have started logging in in Wombat. Forest and right. also in the Dandenong National Park and Silver Reservoir. Um, so that's really sad, but the volume must be significantly reduced. This is their peak season summer, and they haven't logged over the whole summer wow. in, in, in the east. So um, there's been a lot less volume going to, to uh, the Nippon Inc. Um, paper mill in Maryvale, and a lot less volume going to those store logs uh, that take the small portion of native forest logging. Um, probably a lot, a lot less volume going to the manufacture of ships, pellets. Um, but we've seen nothing official. There's nothing intentional about it. It's just like, oh, well, we can't because of the court. Gotcha. Yeah. It, it, well, although I don't know that the decision by Nippon to stop making white paper was entirely because of supply problems. They may have been looking for an excuse to get out. I don't know. Well, yes, this does bring us to 2023. And we've, uh, the logging industry has had a few knockbacks in Victoria. News headlines last year about the losses, uh, unprecedented losses made by the sector. And then, yeah, there's sort of the speculation early Feb around Nippon closing. Um, but I wanted to ask... In terms of King Lake Friends of the Forest and your focus, what's 2023 got in store or where's, where's the focus at? Oh, surveying and surveying and surveying, just monitoring right. the forest, making sure we know where every glider is, every waterway, every hollow-bearing tree, a yellow-bellied feed trees, all those things are protected now in the, in the new the permanent injunction set by the, the court. Um, and so we just, we need, we need so many surveys. <laughs> um, and, and, but, I mean, I must say it's a, a fun thing to do, so uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. But, um, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. And, 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 and the good thing is is that 
um, unlike before when we looked for greater gliders and we found greater gliders and then they just robbed them, killed them. Mm. Um, when we find greater gliders or, you know, a hollow bearing tree, we will save that one. You know, so that's, that's a great thing. That's so exciting. That was Eidwin from Earth Matters chatting with Sue McKinnon from King Lake Friends of the Forest. You can listen to Earth Matters here on 3CR every Sunday from 11 till 11.30. Next up, we're going to play you a song by Georgia Smith, an English R&B and soul singer. This is her track, Lost and Found.
was Georgia Smith with her track Lost and Found. Up next, we bring you a conversation with Laura O'Connell Rapria, the former director of Aotearoa digital campaign organisation Action Station. Laura is in conversation with Commons librarian Holly Hammond as they discuss the importance of putting shared values at the heart of campaigning and other work, as well as the significance of contributions by youth and First Nations to social change. Hi, welcome Laura O'Connell Rapira to Commons Conversations. Uh, great to be spending some time with you and hearing about your insights and experiences in campaigning and organising and movement building. Laura, can you introduce yourself however you would like to? Um, thank you for having me here. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, my name is Laura. I am queer Māori INFP, um, Libra Sun, Cancer Rising, Leo Moon, which I feel is like essential when one is queer, must bring in our um, astrology charts. I'm a community organiser, a campaigner, a writer, currently living on Wurundjeri country in Nam, so-called Melbourne, so-called Australia, um, and originally from the lands of Taranaki and Aotearoa, New Zealand. So Laura, I've you know followed your work, but you already have materials in the Commons Library that are either by you or based on things you've presented. And what really shines through is how you act from your values. And I wondered, as part of introducing yourself, if you want to share some of the values that guide you and where that came from. I used to be the director of Action Station, which is the sister organisation of um, GetUp and lots of other organisations actually around the world who use digital campaigning um, and kind of a multi-issue approach to movement building um, that is member-led to generate action, harness energy to create change. And um, I was at Action Station for seven years, so from when we had kind of a mailing list of 200 to when we had a mailing list of 400,000 people. When I uh, took over as the director, one of the things that I wanted to do was move us kind of away from being a member-led organisation towards being a values-led organisation. And, I mean, our team were looking around the world, our board were looking around the world, and uh, at that time, I think, like, Brexit was happening, Trump had just been voted in, and we were kind of reflecting on whether or not majoritarian democratic ways of doing things, where, you know, people vote on a direction that you're going to go in and then um, and then you follow that direction, was indeed 
the best pathway for us to achieve liberation and justice. And we thought perhaps not. And and so what we decided to do was look to Indigenous ways of um, being, doing and knowing within the context that we were operating in. So in Aotearoa at that time, Moana Jackson, who is uh, very uh, dear to many Māori people's hearts. He is a constitutional lawyer, writer, a thinker, um, and has just done a lot for our people. He and Margaret Mutu, who has also done a lot for our people, had led a participatory process where they travelled around the um, country speaking to 10,000 Māori about what they hope, what we hope, Aotearoa will look like in 2040, because at that time it will be 200 years since the Treaty of Waitangi um, will be signed. And so that's the kind of document that allows for um, settlement within Aotearoa from non-Māori. As part of that process, what became very clear was actually what is important is that um, it, if we are going to achieve a kind of harmonious society in which everyone has what they need to thrive, then the decisions we, na- we make need to be guided by values. And um, in the case of Mātiki Mai, this process, those values are Māori values. And so what we decided to do at Action Station was respond to a recommendation that came out of that process that was led by Māori for Māori of Māori in which they um, explicitly said, if you are part of uh, groups or communities um, of non-Māori, our recommendation to you is that you follow a similar process and talk about what your values are and talk about how the world will be different if we live by those values. And so as an organisation that had a majority non-Māori kind of community and membership, we decided to run a process where we um, brought people together from different backgrounds. Um, We kind of created these host packs. It was a form of deep organising, deep and distributed organising, where we created host packs where anyone anywhere could download a conversation pack and decide to host a lunch or a dinner or a breakfast or whatever. The food part is quite important, we realised and thought, because it's kind of a, you know, breaking bread is an ancient tradition that we've done for a long time. I think lots of revolutions have started over kitchen tables, but also it helps make people feel comfy and dreamy, which is really important when you're talking about values in, in the future. And so 500 Action Station members hosted lunches, dinners um, to talk about what are the values that need to sit at the heart of our society and our decision making in order to have a fair and flourishing future for everyone. And so what was really interesting about that process is that Action Station members, by and large, chose Māori values to be the values that need to guide us if we're going to get to the future that we want. And I think that makes a lot of sense because we're essentially picking values that come from the land. And I think everything starts and ends with the land. Some of those values are manakitanga, which is kind of the idea of um, a person isn't necessarily going to remember what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. It's the act of uplifting someone else's inherent dignity and worth. It's also the act of being generous and um, in your hospitality without the expectation of anything in return. So it's making sure that when people come to your spaces, they have a good feed, they feel really comfortable, you cater to all of their access needs, you've made sure that they feel valued and heard and understood and all of those sorts of things. Another example of a value from the Māori world is kaitiakitanga, which is the idea of looking after those things that we treasure. It's often used to talk about lands and water, but it can also be used to talk about each other and our children and our babies and ourselves. Another value that guides my work is wairuatanga, which is the recognition that we are inherently spiritual beings um, and that we are connected to each other and also to the earth. And it's about honouring that when we come into a space, we aren't just bringing our physical being, but our spiritual being as well. Um, And recognising that with us in every room that we come into, we're bringing our ancestors and our histories and our lineages with us. And so 
it pays to be respectful um, when talking about other people because you're not just talking about the person that you see in front of you, but you're talking about all of the people that come with them and came for them. Thanks, Laura. That's really powerful and just really strikes me that that was a deep process and it connected to values that had been alive for, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years. And, you know, when I think about organisations in the progressive or civil society space, often there are values that the organisation holds, but, you know, not to such a depth. And you kind of see organisations can get knocked off their path, whether that's to do with funding or political situation or conflict that goes on within the organisation. So I don't know, do you have any advice to organisations that want to be more values-led, you know, is it a similar process? Are there other ideas? One of the things I really love about Māori values and the way that they're phrased is that they always end with tanga, and tanga is the is a verb. It's the act of making it live. Um, and so one of the things that I think that is really important is that our values can't be just words that we put on a wall. They have to be things that we have translated into practices that are shared between the people who are upholding those values. And so it's really about creating a culture in which people know, live, breathe, act by, and in accordance with those values that you have decided upon together. And I actually think it makes decision-making easier in many ways, easier and harder. And I'll give you an example. So Action Station um, has a community petition platform, um, and we offer this to people to be able to turn their ideas into action to change policy within councils or corporations or government. The idea is that as long as the petition ask aligns with our vision and our values, then we will support you to turn it into a campaign. And so we often have people starting petitions with us. And in one instance, there was a person who started a petition, which was grounded in the idea of democracy and participatory democracy, which is a value that our community holds as being really important. The idea that the people who are impacted by a decision should be involved in helping to make that decision. However, in this case, the petition ask was to stop the felling of imported trees, so non-native trees, on a sacred mountain that had recently been returned to the people of those lands. So the hapu, the kind of clan, the people of those lands, Tangata Whenua, had, um, as part of a treaty reparation process, had the sacred mountain returned to them. And they had a long-term plan to cull, I think it was around 180 exotic trees, and they um, wanted to, over time, plant 13,000 native trees. So they wanted to replant these, um, they wanted to return this, mountain, um, their ancestral mountain, to the way it was prior to colonisation. So it's a very long-term plan. It's driven by Māori sovereignty. It's driven by people of the land making decisions about those lands. And this person lived in that area, loved these imported trees, went for walks on this mountain often, and they'd started a petition to say our community were not consulted about about this decision that the mana whenua, the people of those lands, were making. And so in that moment, we had competing values coming up. Um, which was, do we centre Māori sovereignty in this or do we centre participatory democracy in which everyone affected by something gets to have a say? And because we had decided as a as a group, as a team, as a movement, that to us Māori sovereignty is absolutely central, the decision was made not to support that petition to become a campaign. And, you know, we pointed them in the direction of other tools that they could use if it's something that they wanted to take up. We also suggested they try to have conversations with the people of those lands because often you, I think sometimes in the campaigning world, we skip the conversation part and jump to a campaign and it's not always necessary. Uh, but it wasn't in alignment with our values. And so it um, simultaneously makes the decisions easier and harder, easier in that 
it's very clear about where we prioritize putting our energy and harder in that um, you have to let some people down because it means when you choose to be values led and not member led, it, it does mean that um, some members in your community aren't necessarily going to agree with the decision that you end up making. And that's the trade off. That's such a great example of competing values, but the kind of process of considering the options and working it through and being guided what's by what's been decided and that differentiation between member-led and values-led, I think that's a really um, important one. Thank you. That was Laura O'Connell Rapria chatting with Holly Hammond about embedding shared values into campaigning and the importance of contributions by youth and First Nations people for social change. For more conversations from the Common Library Project, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash acting up forward slash commons hyphen conversations. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Three CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kindergarten. In a kinder program, children learn through play, art, music and dance. Qualified teachers create culturally safe places for Aboriginal children and families. Koori kids shine at kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash koori-kids-shine. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Three CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how three CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Have you experienced or seen racism against black followers? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Salam be Hamegi. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. 
Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness, and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR... So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Frenzy Theatre Co. create theatre that is as entertaining as it is urgent and current and have just announced their new show, The World According to Dinosaurs, on at La Mama, May 24th to June 4th. We're joined now by one of the writers, Belle Hansen, and a member of the cast, Anna Louie. Thanks so much for joining us, Belle and Anna. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. <laughs> Um, Belle, I was hoping that you could tell us a bit about Frenzy Theatre Co. and the work that you do. Yeah, totally. So uh, at Frenzy, we're very much about ensemble-based devised work. So The World According to Dinosaurs is no um, exception to that. Uh, We created this work with an ensemble from the get-go, and then Amelia and myself wrote it all down, edited it, and then... um, yeah, put it together as a big ensemble piece for uh, the DC playlist and for young adults to process the end of the world everywhere. 
Um, for the listeners, listeners who might not be as aware, can you explain, like, I guess, the main differences between devised work and the process of how you created this show versus maybe what people think is a typical process of creating a stage show? Yeah, totally. So uh, I'm not a writer. I'm a <laughs> theatre maker because I could never do the typical thing of sit down at a computer and type out scene by scene a show. Um, my brain does not work that way. Um, so we use people and bodies and ideas in a room to sort of improvise and debate and chat about the type of stuff we want to make a show out of um, and then use those uh, improvisations and uh, sort of quick thinking activities to put together scenes in a very uh, bits and bobs way mm. and then put a through line through it later. Um, I think it's a much more uh, collaborative and communal way to write, um, personally. Mm, sounds very interesting. Uh, Anna, as one of the performers in the show, can you tell us a bit about this process from your perspective and what drew you to performing in this show? Yeah, absolutely. So I was involved in an earlier development last year of the show when it was quite early in its stages. So we put together a showing and we pretty much had a script complete. But what's really happened with the new work um, that we've done so far is that it's completely changed what the script means to me. I think I see it in so much richer detail now and especially having a set ensemble of actors who are really willing to collaborate together has brought the work to life in a whole new way. What really drew me to the work itself is the meaning of it and how um, relevant it is to all young people in this world that we're living in at the moment. It is, as well mentioned, about the end of the world, but it's also about climate grief and justice. And I'm really passionate about climate change personally, and I think what the work manages to explore is this individual versus collective, um, like all the decision-making and choices that we have around climate change and around our actions. Mm. I think it's really prevalent in, in the piece because... These characters called A and B, they're working at a cafe. It seems like a mundane setting, but then they have huge discussions about globalism and capitalism and what it means to be a young people living amongst all the problems that we have to deal with and feel like we have to fix as the generation who will live to see the crisis at the end. Mm, for sure. Um, I feel like you touched on it a bit there, Anna, but Belle, what, uh, I guess, drew you to, at this point in time, creating a work that is on these themes of globalisation and uh, capitalism and climate change? Yeah, we um, basically our major thing was we didn't want to sugarcoat all of the issues, um, Mm. but more try and help young people imagine and process what the future might look like. Um, Because a lot of shows that are about climate change are like, it's really bleak and it's really (laughs) sad and Mm. depressing from like go to woe, but it like, it's still life and we're still living it. So we want (laughs) to, we wanted to have a look at what that might look like. And it's called the world according to dinosaurs because we go all the way back to all the way back to the dinosaurs and use paleontology and like massive world events to process where we are and what our future might look like based on past experience. Mm. 
Um, and I guess this is a question for both of you, but what sort of role do you see theatre and live performance in playing in unpacking these really large, sometimes hard to comprehend uh, topics and conversations? Anna, do you have anything to say on that? Yeah, definitely. I think the stage just allows people to see things in a different light. Our show is so ridiculously funny as well, and I think <laughs> it provides that opportunity to see things in a different perspective. And when we have discussions, it's often really hard to kind of start or know what to talk about. But when you see a show, you're able to dissect things in a way where you might have more things to say afterwards because you saw something done on stage Mm. and you're able to connect to those experiences. It also brings a human quality to everything that's much stronger too because we're people, we may be actors, but we are talking about the human experiences and... We're obviously people ourselves, and I think the empathy and the humour is able to change people um, in a really deep and meaningful way. Mm, Yeah, I find as an audience member, uh, comedy in a show really helps, I guess, break the ice in a way and allows you to sort of start to process the bigger themes without being put off or shying away from it. Belle, did you have anything else on sort of the role of theatre in these sorts of topics? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that the setup of live theatre in particular, where you're sitting there with an audience Mm. full of people that you do and don't know, um, and then you go out into the foyer afterwards and you hear all the conversations about, often about not just like the quality of work, but what it made you think and what moments really stuck with you. And if we can make moments about processing really big life events stick with people through theatre, I think that's a pretty great thing, to be honest. (laughs) Mm, Definitely. Um, And you mentioned at the start of the interview that The World According to Dinosaurs is on the VC Drama and Theatre Studies playlist. Um, Belle, can you tell us about why you wanted to create work with young people in mind and why it's relevant for students? Yeah. Um, When Amelia and I started putting uh, this show together, we were talking about how uh, a lot of the shows that um, we saw in high school, the characters weren't um, our age or an Mm. age close to where we were going to be, or the stories weren't 100% relatable, which isn't always the purpose of a VCE show, but we also wanted to write a show that was by young people Mm. for young people. So a lot of our ensemble... uh, um, late teens, early to mid-twenties, which is exactly where these students being in grade 11 and 12 are about to go into. Mm. It's set in a hospitality job. It's <laughs> <laughs> it used uh, very, very current pop culture references, all mm. that sort of stuff, and also some really old um, throwback ones that they now call nostalgic. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, yeah, so we wanted to make a work that, we would have loved to see when we were in year 11 and 12, but it was also super relevant to a general public audience as well, especially those in their 20s and 30s. Mm, Totally. I think it's really powerful when you're in those final years of high school to see something that you can relate to, but also you're studying theatre and drama and potentially wanting to go down to that pathway and to see that young people are doing that is uh, really special. Um, Anna, I know that Frenzy Theatre Co. aims to create opportunities for emerging artists. And so I was wondering, as a young artist yourself, what does this kind of opportunity mean for you? Yeah, I think it's absolutely great what Frenzy is able to create within the community. 
think they've grown so much over the years and a big part of that is their willingness to expand and to invite other people in. The mm. theatre industry can be a really exclusive place and often it's hard to get your foot through the door, especially when you are a, an emerging artist or you're a diverse artist or you feel like you don't necessarily fit into the traditional standards of what performing arts should look like. So Frenzy being able to reach out and say, come join us, come do workshops, come be a part of development. It's really important to set those spaces up that are inclusive and um, to not necessarily, you know, hold the opportunities back from anyone for you to get ahead. It's, yeah, really great to be a part of something where you feel like um, you're meant to be there and that people want to create further opportunities to develop artists, especially when you are new. Mm, for sure. I also firmly believe that theatre should be a welcoming, inclusive space. So that is great to hear. Um, unfortunately, that is all that we have time for this morning. But thank you both so much for joining us on today's show. Thanks for having us. That was Belle Hansen and Anna Louie talking about Frenzy Theatre Co.'s new work, The World According to Dinosaurs. You can catch the show at La Mama Theatre, May 24 to June 4. To find out more, head to lamama.com.au. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. All right. North Preston Life Saving Club is a new creative space, gallery and studios run for and by queer artists with disability. They're currently taking applications for studios and membership with priority given to disabled, queer and BIPOC communities. They'll be running workshops, holding community events and showcasing works by local and interstate artists. The North Preston Life Saving Club crew are seeking assistance in getting up and running and they need your help to get three-phase power to run equipment, including a kiln. To find out more and to show your support for independent creatives, please visit their Facebook page, North Preston Life Saving Club. North Preston Life Saving Club is a 3CR supporter. Next up, we're going to play you a track by Leanne Lahavas. Uh, Leanne is an alternate folk and soul singer and guitarist. This is her track, Paper Thin.
slipping in and out of such confidence and overwhelming doubt. But if I love myself, I know I can't be no one else. Oh, no, don't go. Cause I need you so. Oh, give me the other key. was Paper Thin by Leanne Lahavas. Teague is an Armenian diasporan anarchist and musician who makes Armenian, Armenian folk industrial noise music under the name Blood of a Pomegranate. They join us on the show this morning to talk about their upcoming performance, Trans Day of Vengeance, alongside DJ Baby Mode and Slumber Kitty. Welcome back to 3CR, Teague. Hi, thank you so much, Jasmine. Uh, so, we know that you'll be playing a gig this Friday along with DJ Baby Mode and DJ Slumber Kitty. Can you tell us a bit more how you came to organise this gig? Um, and also, um, sorry, the gig Trans Day of Vengeance? Yeah, um, so uh, I'm not one of the organisers, although I am helping with um, just putting together some of the sound stuff. But um, yeah, I was offered this gig um, by uh, Affinity Group that was... Um, putting this event on because uh, typically we consider the day to be Trans Day of Visibility, um, but uh, a lot of us have a problem with this concept of Trans Day of Visibility because, um, yeah, there's a lot of transgender people who are made invisible by capitalism in the state. Um, So we are organizing it as Trans Day of Vengeance, to basically make it a bit more active and also to raise funds for the um, Incarcerated Trans and Gender Diverse Community Fund. Yeah, great. And um, you've got something special planned for this performance. Are you able to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, because we've had such a horrible, you know, couple of weeks 
with the Posey Parker Nazi turf rally. Um, uh, I thought that this gig would be a bit um, of a shame if we didn't kind of open things up for everyone to be able to express themselves through the performance as well. So what I've decided to do is I've called my friend Scarlett, who is the drummer of a band called Diploid, um, to join me on stage. Um, and it's going to be uh, fully improvised. So myself and her together improvising um, because, yeah, I, I personally feel that like um, improvisation is a far more vital way of expression um, than like writing songs and performing them. Um, but as well as that, we're not playing with a stage. We're actually going to be playing in the midst of the crowd. Um, so we're going to be at the same level as everyone else. And I'm going to be making my microphone, not my microphone that day, but the people's microphone, a microphone for anyone to take into their own hands and express what they want in whatever means they want. Um, and especially encouraging transgender and gender diverse people, trans women of color, First Nations trans women especially, um, to take the mic and um, purge their rage at the system and what's been going on lately. Um, and yeah, uh, I usually use a very specific form of vocal processing with my microphone, um, which I personally find to be very self-empowering. And I wanted people to also have the opportunity to um, uh, put their voices through this processing and feel that same empowerment. Um, so just to give you a brief, brief uh, summary of what that is, it's like... Um, I do this processing that basically like replaces the your your own vocal cords with sounds of a uh, windstorm and a uh, wildfire um and uh it basically sounds like these natural forces themselves are speaking um so the way that you enunciate is being um is is controlling the sound of those samples um and you can also change the size of the um of the instrument as well so you can actually make it sound like the enunciation is coming from those samples but from the size of about like a small bird all the way up to the size of a mountain and anything in between and it kind of feels like this like um it, this way of like transcending the your own body and your own physical um limitations and doing something that goes beyond that that sounds really incredible. Um, how long have you been experimenting with um, music, voice, and sound samples in this way? Um, in this way, I think it probably came to a head about a, a year ago, I guess, um, that I got it to be like, you know, at this current stage. But honestly, I've been doing like experimental music my whole life. So um, you could probably say since my teens. Um, I've been doing it, but, um, yeah, the specific like vocal manipulation stuff has been much more recent. Um, it's it kind of like coincided with my, um, like me opening up to my own, um, gender, um, identity and all these sorts of things and trying to find ways to like overcome what, you know, um, what other people might consider is a masculine voice or whatever. Um, so it started with just like trying to like use filters to like change the um, general timbre of my voice to sound higher or deeper. Um, and then it sort of like cascaded into, well, why am I even having a human voice at all? Why don't I just like start like using like samples of, you know, things that I find relevant? Like, you know, I use natural sounds because they're relevant to climate change, which is 
deeply tied into um, like all the issues we're seeing today. They both stem from capitalism. Yeah, great. And, um, you know, of course, we know that the last two weeks have been really challenging for the trans community with, um, as you mentioned earlier, anti-trans figure Posey Parker touring the continent um, and the violence of neo-Nazis and police. Are you able to talk to us a bit about the importance of coming together in a space like you've mentioned as a community, especially during times like this? Yeah, well, I think, you know, um, what you said is exactly right. But um, what also is happening is that we're living in a in a world where everyone is so atomized and alienated from themselves and each other, their labor, the social system at, at large, you know. And um, events like this can make people default to becoming a bit reclusive, you know, like um, not wanting to engage with people because you feel betrayed by everything around you. Um, and so it kind of like it uh, it severs the potential for community organizing and also for survival. Like we need community to survive. We need to come together to feel like there's hope and there's a space for us to actually express what we're feeling um, and to organize the the future that we want for ourselves. Um, so I think um, in the fallout of this really horrible time, I think that I've seen some people isolate and I've seen others try to come together. And I want to encourage people to come together as much as possible. Um, so uh, another thing that's happening, I think, is that there's a new energy for anti-fascist organizing. Um, and I think it's easy for people to look at that new energy, um, all the influx of anti-fascist groups feeling suddenly overwhelmed by such a massive influx of interest of people asking how they can get organized, how they can get involved. Um, it's it's a great thing. Um, but uh, we also have to remember that these sorts of like moments of sudden energy, um, it can just fall away, um, just sort of fizzle out kind of quickly as well. So unless we sort of like make it concrete in the immediate term, um, encourage people to get organized and also help people understand that getting organized isn't actually that hard at all. You're already organized. If you're organizing a movie night with your friends, you're getting organized. It's just not a political, it's not a political form of organizing, right? Um, if you organize together towards political ends, it's basically the same thing. Um, so I really want to encourage people to um, come together. Let's express our rage and also our joy at the same time, because even though these things might seem diametrically counterposed, I, I see them as like two sides of the same coin. Mm, yeah, no, thanks for sharing that insight, Tig. And finally, if listeners are keen to come along to the gig, how can they find out more? Um, you can follow um, IRL Info Shop on Instagram. You can also follow my page, which is Blood of a Pomegranate. Um, that's on Instagram as well. There's underscores between each of those words. Um, and, yeah, I'll be posting a lot about it. Um, and if you don't have Instagram, I think um, there's probably a, a Facebook event as well. Um, you can also follow Cafe at Catalyst. Um, that the Catalyst is the venue that we're doing it in. Um, and, yeah, we'll be starting from 7.30 and going all the way till midnight on the 31st of um, 
March. So, yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Um, it sounds like an, a really, really important event. Um, and, yeah, it, it's so great that you're able to hold this safe space for so many people. Um, thanks for joining us this morning, Tig. Thanks, Jasmine. Thank you. That was Tig, also known as Blood of a Pomegranate, speaking to us about their upcoming gig, Trans Day of Vengeance, taking place this Friday, the 31st of March, from half past seven till midnight at the Catalyst Social Centre in Brunswick. To find out more about Tig's music project, you can go to bloodofapomegranate.bandcamp.com. That actually brings us to the end of our show this morning. So, um... <coughs> We heard um, from the carbon cost of native tree logging with Jennifer Sanger earlier this morning. We then heard um, an additional conversation and report um, from Earth Matters with um, Edwin Jeffrey and Sue McKinnon from King Lakes Friends of Forest. We heard a conversation with Laura O'Connell Repria, the former director of Aotora Digital Campaign Organisation Action Station. And then we had, we were joined on the phone by Belle and Anna from Frenzy Theatre Co. talking about their new work, The World According to Dinosaurs. And you just heard from Tig, um, Blood of a Pomegranate, talking about their upcoming show, Trans Day Vengeance. Keep it locked to 3CR. Coming up next is Accent of Women. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the new International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.